Welcome back to The Happy Hour, a palate-cleansing podcast where we talk about happy news and creative solutions to the issues of today. And we believe news is best heard over a glass of your favorite drink, whatever that may be. I'm Malachi Wade. And I'm Shayla Martos. And for our 13th episode, we'll be talking about women in history, farm workers getting vaccinated, and we have an interview with MJ Johnson from KQED about tiny homes for houseless youth in Oakland. And of course, a special cocktail. So this week, we wanted to talk about San Francisco's decision to reopen indoor dining and movie theaters. So far, indoor dining can reopen in San Francisco, Marin, Napa, Santa Clara, and San Mateo counties. The cities of Berkeley and Oakland may also reopen as soon as next week if COVID-19 cases continue to drop, according to Eater SF. Also, San Francisco has slated for certain schools to reopen starting April 12th. We think this is important to bring up as it's a large shift in life for residents of the Bay Area. Last year, we saw significant spikes in COVID cases after reopenings, according to Healthline and The Washington Post. So this does not mean that we are safe to resume life as normal. We reopen, we spike, we shut down. We reopen, we spike, we shut down. So we at the happy hour want to ask all of you, what will you do differently this time around? Want to go to the movies? The drive-in is back, baby. They're cheaper. You can bring your own snacks, which I know you do already. And no one will get on your case about putting your feet up. Are you planning on dining in? Maybe wait until a large percent of food service workers receive vaccines, since food workers, emergency service workers, and educators were only granted the eligibility to sign up for vaccines on February 26th in San Francisco. Farm workers are among the hardest hit by COVID, and Santa Clara County is trying to vaccinate people through a mobile clinic. According to the SF Chronicle, the county expected to distribute 1,000 vaccinations last Monday and Wednesday. This was organized by the United Farm Workers Union, or UFW, a coalition of different organizing forces founded during the farm labor movement in 1962 by organizers like Dolores Huerta, Larry Itleong, and Cesar Chavez. The mobile clinic was first set up at the Monterey Mushrooms facility in Morgan Hill, and next they planned to move to Gilroy. A study from Cal Berkeley found that 13% of farm workers in the Salinas Valley tested positive for COVID-19 from mid-July to November. This is a drastic spike compared to the 5% of Californians from March to November. This is how the vaccine can become more accessible to farm working communities. Bring it to them. One of San Francisco's favorite local newspapers, El Tecolote, dropped their first episode of their podcast called Radio Teco on March 1st. El Tecolote started as a student project out of San Francisco State University in 1970 and was the product of activism during the student strike of 1968 and a need for more Spanish-speaking and Latinx-focused news. El Teco is published by the nonprofit Acción Latina, which is located in the Mission District of SF. El Teco and Acción Latina not only provide the Latinx community with bilingual news, but also cultural and art events. Radio Teco is bilingual, and from the downbeat of the intro music, you can feel the influence and appreciation for Latinx culture. The first episode is an interview with Alejandro Galicia Diaz, award-winning photographer for the paper, on his fight against COVID. Our historical local newspaper is adapting to the future of news. We love to see it. And of course, we love a good podcast. 
And to kick off our first episode during Women's History Month, we wanted to talk about influential women who helped advance their fields and the world. Congressmember Patsy Mink was born in 1927 to Japanese parents in the territory of Hawaii before it became a state. She was able to get a law degree in the 1950s, but because of racism toward her interracial marriage, she wasn't able to find work after passing the bar exam. So she started her own practice, the Oahu Young Democrats, in 1954. She became the first Japanese-American woman to practice law in Hawaii. Once Hawaii became a state, she started a campaign for Congress. She became the first woman of color elected to the House of Representatives and the first Asian-American to serve in Congress. Mink co-wrote the Title IX bill that helped facilitate gender equality in higher education. She was also involved in the Early Childhood Education Act and the Women's Educational Equity Act. She was the first Asian American to run for president. Mink died in 2002, but because she passed just a month before she was up for re-election, her name was still on the ballot and she won by a landslide. Wait, she won re-election after she died? Yep, wild. Amazing. Iconic. Of course, I want to talk about Octavia Butler, the first prolific black female science fiction writer and one of my personal heroes. Octavia Estelle Butler was born in Pasadena, California in 1947, right outside of Los Angeles. She was raised by her Baptist mother and grew up an extremely shy child in an integrated yet still socially segregated city. Butler began spending her days at the Pasadena Central Library, reading everything she could, and that's where she fell in love with science fiction. When Butler was 10, her mother bought her a typewriter and said, Everyone on Earth has something they can do better than anything else. It's up to them to find out what that something is. And for Butler, that was writing science fiction. She took on temporary, labor-intensive jobs so she could have consistent time to write, often starting at 3 a.m. Forget inspiration, Butler said. Habit is more dependable. Habit will sustain you whether you're inspired or not. Habit is persistence in practice. Butler was the first black woman to win the coveted Hugo and Nebula Awards for her work, as well as the first writer to receive a MacArthur Fellowship. She passed in 2006 at age 58, though her influence carries on in a new, diverse generation of sci-fi and speculative writers. Continuing our recognition of amazing trailblazers in history, NASA renamed their DC headquarters after Mary Jackson, their first African-American and female engineer and a pioneer in aeronautics. Jackson, who received degrees in both mathematics and physical science, joined the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in 1951 as a computer in the segregated West Area section. During the space race, women served as computers, calculating complicated math such as propulsion and trajectory, doing everything by hand with pencil and paper. Wow. Yeah, could you imagine? I can't. (laughs) Jackson rose from a computer to an engineer in 1958. Fun fact, do you know that that's why they're called computers? I didn't know that until this. Yeah. Like, until, like, I saw the movie. Jackson rose from a computer to an engineer in 1958 and co-authored her first paper in the same year, Effects of Nose Angle and Mach Number on Transition on Codes at Supersonic Speeds. Of course, naturally. Um, Yeah. Like, that sounds so cool. So cool. (laughs) 
Jackson was a main character in the book Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and the Untold Story of the Black Women Who Helped Win the Space Race, and the movie adaptation. Alongside her were Dorothy Vaughn, NASA's first African-American manager and later expert computer programmer, and Katherine Johnson, whose work on flight paths was integral in historic space missions. And in more fun science news, this story is a bit of a nod to one of our very first happy stories on the show, the cocoa bird returning to Guam. This time, a native bird has been seen in Indonesia for the first time in 170 years, according to the New York Times. The black-browed babbler was discovered in 1850 on the Indonesian side of the island of Borneo. Only one deceased specimen was actually found before the bird seemingly disappeared, causing ornithologists to label it one of the greatest enigmas of Indonesian ornithology, according to the guide, Birds of the Indonesian Archipelago. Also, not many birders ventured out to Borneo until 2016 when a local birdwatching group was formed called B.W. Galitis. Local birders were curious about the identity of a little black and brown bird and managed to photograph one and send the pictures to people in B.W. Galitis. It was then shared with other ornithologists and confirmed as the black-browed babbler. Bird enthusiasts in Indonesia compared the return of the babbler to rediscovering the passenger pigeon, which is extinct. Researchers hope that they can continue to study the babbler as well as bring other bird nerds from around the world to share in their excitement. Next up, we have an interview with MJ Johnson, SF State graduate and current intern for the KQED newscast, on our multimedia coverage of the Tiny House Empowerment Village in Oakland. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined by MJ Johnson, she, her pronouns, an SFSU journalism grad and current newscast intern for KQED. Welcome, MJ. Welcome. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Oh, we're here. excited to have you on. I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for this moment all your life. I know, right? MJ, we want to start just knowing a little bit more about you, uh, where you're from, what you're into, what kind of stories you like to report on. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm a writer and visual journalist based in the Bay Area. I'm actually from Japan. I moved to the U.S. about 12 years ago, but I live in California. I love it, and I'm never leaving. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I like to cover, I mean, I'm all over the place, you know, covering daily news, news, um, local stuff. But I really, I, I think the stories I really like to cover are Stories that have to do with like an intersection of uh, race, um, identity, and history. That's kind of my my niche. What what brought you to SF State? Why did you end up studying there? It's kind of been a long journey. I went to school um, in LA and Santa Barbara. I was working on other things. I started in film. I wanted to be a screenwriter or a filmmaker, but that didn't mm-hmm. really work out. <laughs> I was kind of all over the place for a long time, but eventually found my way to San Francisco and went back to school and people were counseling me about like what it is that I really want to do and like feel passionate about. And I knew I wanted to still be in like media and be telling stories. And I was like really vague about it. Mm -hmm. 
but I just, I just, I find myself to be a very like inquisitive person naturally. So it just kind of went into journalism and then I found myself <laughs> at SF State and the rest is history, as they say. Cool. So going off of your interests in storytelling, and um, we want to talk about the specific story that you recently did for KQED about the tiny house empowerment village in Oakland. Can you walk us through how you came across that story? Yeah, that was actually something I wanted to be reporting on for a long time. When I first came to the Bay Area, I would ride BART. Between the West Oakland like BART line, you can see from BART these, this little village of tiny houses are for homeless people. So those are, those are called tough sheds. And the city of Oakland started pioneering this program to put um, houseless people into these tiny houses. And so there's actually two of those other villages. And then that was years ago. So I started looking into it and I found that there is this nonprofit called Youth Spirit Artworks. And they were building a tiny house village specifically for um, homeless youth. And then that project was taking like years and years. So I never actually got the opportunity to report on it. And the timing was just like never right. I wasn't at the right publication or anything. So finally, just like all of a sudden, like I found out that they were opening. So I decided to go over there and just talk to people, see the place and see what was going on. And it was just really exciting to be there because the vibe is so electric. Like if you see in my story, the pictures of the place and the video. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The village is just so vibrant and colorful. And the nonprofit, they specifically built it that way because they wanted to create an environment that was really inviting um, for young people and to give them something that maybe they hadn't seen within their lives. So if you're there, you just feel this energy and it feels so good to like know that um, these young people are finally getting a place to stay. And And the people that I was talking to, like, they're young. They're like in their 20, their early 20s, like 21, 22. And they've been homeless since they were teens. And you can tell from their stories that they've been through a lot. And the experience of a kid on the street is different than, you know, the experience of people who have been there for years and years and years. So yeah, everyone was just really grateful to be there and super excited and just so happy. And I, I love being in that environment. It was such a great experience for me. And that's so cool that you wanted to do a story about that for a while. I feel like there's like some, you know, a lot of the times you just, as a journalist, you just kind of see something and you're like, oh, that would be a good story. I'll do it. And, you know, then you kind of make your connections there and your passion for pursuing that. But that's neat that you were able to kind of like watch it slowly happen. And then eventually the pieces kind of came together. Can you walk us through like a little bit more like in detail what it looks like? Kind of try to paint a picture for us. I'd love, like, you know, as someone who hasn't been there, I'd love to see it like from your eyes kind of there's mm-hmm. a lot of artwork and stuff. So I'd love to hear about what the houses look like themselves. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when you first get there, it's almost like a shock because even the fence that's around it, every single plank is painted in just these really vibrant colors and every single plank has messages um, on it of prayer and there's artwork. So just just walking through the fence, you already know you're coming to someplace special because in the location that it's at is um, on Hagenberger Road in Oakland. 
if you don't know that area is very industrialized and it's um, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of development there. So even just seeing the outside is like it's almost like a shock. You're like taken aback. So then when you're walking in, there are 26 tiny houses and these houses are um, eight by 10 feet. So they're pretty small and compact. But each house is painted in all different colors on each wall. And there are murals by Bay Area artists that volunteered to come out and paint murals on each side of the house. So there are a lot of just really unique art styles and artworks. There's murals of like Frida Kahlo and other really beautiful just paintings. And like if you get a chance to see it, like you should definitely check it out because it's, it's just so awe-inspiring. There's also uh, community gardens. They have a community yurts. And within those, there's kitchens, art spaces. So the residents there can actually like be creating art while they're surrounded by all this art. So it's just, it's a really a beautiful space that they created there. You can see the time that it took to make it just a really beautiful space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since they started it in 2017, I feel like it's kind of hard to like, because I forget what year it is all the time. So I'm like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. But that was like four <laughs> years ago. I watch a lot of the like little like let's tour tiny homes all around the world videos. So it was really fun to see the pictures that you took in the video of the inside. Yeah, definitely. And I love a good yurt. Can you tell us what's in the tiny homes? Yeah, so in each tiny home, they're all decorated uniquely. So each one is very different. But in each home, they have like a pullout bed. They have a desk, a chair. There's closet space. There's art on the walls that were all donated. I was talking with one resident there and she was just in awe because they had a really comfortable mattress like set up for them. Mm. And It's incredible to see like the reactions that these new residents had just like walking in there. They were so like overwhelmed and just seeing something like really cute and really beautiful because they were telling me that like the tough sheds, the other tiny home villages that were made, those are very like bare bones. Like there's nothing in them. They haven't been decorated. They're just they're just there to put a roof over your head kind of thing. But for this community, they really wanted to emphasize that this is like a special place for your, you, for the resident to like mm-hmm. be able to be comfortable in your own space and something that is specifically for you. That's why each little house is just slightly different to kind of emphasize that each person is unique. Each tiny house was designed to have the certain amenities. So they needed to have a bed, obviously. People need to have a space where they can work, do their homework, whatever. People also need closet space, you know. Everything was built with people's needs in mind, their their basic needs and then their comfort needs. There's artwork, there's like little decorations, like everything there was donated and placed there with the residents' comfort in mind. You know, and and MJ like you you were on this story for for a while and you were really excited to see it come to fruition. Why is this important to you? I think it's just an area that's not really covered in journalism and in the news stories that are about homelessness. I think a lot of stories, at least in the Bay Area right now, is kind of focused on the problem and seeing the really visible nature of homelessness. Like 
In Oakland, yes, there are a lot of very visible encampments for people. And I think uh, residents complain about that all the time. But I, I think I see a lot of complaining in the news media, which is it's kind of disappointing when you're thinking about, OK, these people have nothing and they're just trying to live. So I think it's important to be focused on people and narratives that are making solutions instead of just highlighting problems. I don't want to be part of the journalism that's focused on the problems that houseless people create, because in my opinion, the solutions are more um, important and they're more dynamic. And the stories that come out of the solutions are inspiring and they can actually make a difference. So being able to see a group of people and volunteers that um, really committed and really devoted time to make something special in somebody else's life. Like that to me is what's exciting about what I do, what my work that I do. One of the main reasons why we created this podcast is because we want to talk about solutions and about like happier stories like that, that don't put you down when everything else in the media is Mm so, so negative, you know, and spotlighting what people can actually do and trying to, influence effective change is is something that Malachi and I are really we're excited to talk about this stuff with with the people doing that work so good on you MJ Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is why we asked you here yeah and you're a really cool person so (laughs) yeah I completely agree I think in in journalism there's this idea that happy stories aren't as valid or aren't as um relevant to whatever's going on in the news and you know, the really serious, like depressing stories are the ones that are making a difference in people's lives. But I, I'm the one that likes to read the happy stories compared to those super serious, depressing stories. If everything is just so depressing and like gets you down and is just so focused on the problems in the world, like I have enough problems in my life. Like I (laughs) don't need to be reading about this or like knowing more about the problems. So Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) You should see our production meetings where we're on like Google News and we're five pages deep in California COVID news trying to find something that's not super depressing. Going back to this story specifically, um, reporting on their opening day and actually going to report in the field, um, what was it like to do your reporting and taking photos and shooting video during their opening day? During a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) It was a lot. (laughs) I'll say that. I... I wasn't really expecting to become like this like one man band like <laughs> all of a sudden. So I shot video, I was taking pictures, I was recording for a radio spot and also going to do reporting for a digital piece that I was writing. So I was almost like scared <laughs> when I was there because I wasn't sure I was going to get everything that I needed. But I think I think it's really cool to like showcase um, some of my skills. And that's something that I've been kind of focusing on is like being like the Swiss army knife knife journalist, because I don't know, that's what I kind of want to be is not just somebody who can do one thing, but somebody who can excel at lots of different aspects of media. So 
being there was, <laughs> it was fun. Just like holding a microphone, holding a camera in the other hand and like asking questions and just like <laughs> running around trying to like interview people. It was, it was, uh, I was probably a sight to see. <laughs> <laughs> And that's like, how, how were you able to try and follow COVID guidelines and stuff once you're there? Yeah, actually, you know what? It was my first time reporting in the field since COVID happened. So I was really nervous about that. But thankfully, KQD was good about giving me the guidelines and they were very specific that I needed to have a boom mic in order to be getting audio and I don't have a boom mic. <laughs> so my solution was I found a vacuum pole that's, you know, for the vacuum extendo thing. And so I just stuck the I cleaned it out, stuck the mic in there, and I was holding that out to people. <laughs> and that was a solution that worked. Genius. Your arms must have been so tired. Oh my God. My arms were so sore the next day. I was holding that thing like stretched out for so long. I was exhausted. You also have to hold it really still because, you know, if you're shaking, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be picking up in the mic. And that's the last thing that you want for an audio story. So I was really focused on just like holding it still for dear life. And how about like how long were your interviews? I would say about like 20 minutes. Like, I just had a lot to talk to people about. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and who were some of the people that you interviewed? What were some of the things that they were saying? Yeah, I'm, I definitely interviewed a lot of the organizers who were there, and they were all just saying how relieved they are to finally see the village coming together and to finally see people moving in. And you could really see it on their faces, like how happy they were to see this come into fruition. And then I also talked with a lot of residents there who were moving in. And I was expecting to get like, oh, those good audio clips of like people moving their stuff and like doing a lot of that. But like the, a lot of the residents there, like they didn't have a lot of stuff. So they were just like happy to be there. And I was glad that I was able to capture that excitement and that like buzz mm -hmm. that they were all on. And it was a great feeling. Since you spent a solid amount of time there doing, you know, Swiss Army Knife things. Was there anything that surprised you about uh, your experience? I, I think I was just surprised at how much I was enjoying being there. And I don't know, I think when you're reporting on people who are houseless and their stories, like it has a tendency to be kind of really sad and like you kind of have to tread very lightly. But just the excitement of the day and everybody being there, being so happy was probably something that was really um, surprising to me. The way that um, housing issues are kind of reported in the Bay Area is like, it's very focused on the bad a lot of the time. And it's very focused mm -hmm. on the, the houseless people that are most visible and who have the most problems. And they're always trying to find that extreme of something. And the extreme is always, you know, somebody who's living on the street, who's addicted to drugs, who's going through the worst time of their life. I think that that is the most extreme um, situation. But I think what a lot of people don't get from these stories is how diverse the group of people that are houseless actually is, because the most visible thing that we see is not what the majority is. And mm -hmm. for a lot of um, young people that are homeless, they're not 
necessarily addicted to drugs or having um, health problems or just constantly on the street. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the times they're in school, they have jobs, they have lives. And that is not something that is seen ever. And it's important to show people getting their lives to a place where they can be comfortable. And I think a big part of that is um, having a personal space and having a place where you can feel safe and having your basic needs met. Mm -hmm. And that is not shown, I don't think, in this like housing discourse of getting people what they need. It's always, you know, oh, these tents are costing the city this much amount of money or it's costing the city this much to put people into hotels or something like that. And I think that that is really disappointing and it has the impact of making the general public not as interested in actually creating social programs and and help for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the fact that you think about these these stories deeper and you're trying to look for what's not being told and what needs to be highlighted, I feel is a big reason. Like you're it's a big reason why your work is so solid and then also likely a big reason why you were chosen by KQED to work to work for them and to work on the newscast, which is a tough job. <laughs> yeah, I mean I hope so. Like my intent with everything, although maybe it doesn't come across with everything, is to like show a greater perspective and I'm interested in history, so I want to know about, like, okay, where did this problem come from and, like, what is exacerbating this problem and, like, where are we going from here? Mm -hmm. Like, my perspective is is certainly not just, like, focused on, like, what's present and what's newsworthy. So that's just, like, generally my goal with, like, every story that I work on is to, like, bring context into it. So I hope that I'm doing that at KQED, although, you know, it's not always possible with every single story, but... Yeah, definitely my goal is to bring a greater perspective. And I I think it's important for journalists to always be considering a bigger perspective. So, yeah, as you're, you know, working on developing the type of journalist you want to be, what is next for you? What do you want to be working on? Well, eventually I really want to be building my skills in order to be like a documentary filmmaker. And I think that comes from like way back my interest in filmmaking. And then now my interest in um, telling stories that are based in reality and based in um, what's going on in the world right now. So I want to be reporting on stories about, you know, the diverse communities in America. It's something I didn't grow up with and something that I experience every day living in California. So I'm always finding, you know, interesting stories about um, the Asian American communities in California. And I think that's really important to highlight um, the history of anti-Asian American um, hate and specifically in California, because, you know, that goes way back to the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd mm-hmm. for history. So so <laughs> I want to be exploring how history has an impact on our lives today. And I think it's really um, evident that it does. So that is my goal. I'm so glad that we had you mm-hmm. on today, MJ. I'm really excited to, you know, see what else you do. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to take the next steps and to be moving on to my next challenge. Yeah.
And for those of you that don't know, MJ and I also go roller skating together. And MJ not only is a great journalist, but also a, a pretty a pretty great roller skater and has been teaching me tricks. <laughs> so We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. We're trying our best. I fell really bad Oof. last week. I'm really, so really, afraid of falling because I'm so tall. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, journalist, roller skater, the whole package deal. Inside <laughs> <laughs> of me. <laughs> she does it all. She does it all. Well, thank, thank you, MJ. We'll likely try to have you mm-hmm. back at some point. You keep doing this great work. Yeah, thank you so much, MJ, for joining us on the podcast. We'll be following all your stories in the future and hope to talk about more of them. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Welcome back, everyone, and another thank you to MJ for joining us. Thank you, MJ. Our last story of the episode is a little spring hiking guide because the flowers are starting to bloom, daylight savings is in a few days, and it's time to go find some new beautiful walking spots. These recommendations come from the Bold Italic. We'll start in the South Bay with Windy Hills Anniversary Trail near Portola Valley. The hike is best done at sunrise or sunset when you can wind through the wildflowers to watch the sun on the bay horizon. For a short hike with a big reward, head out to Chimney Rock Trail at Point Reyes for another beautiful ocean view. California poppies and buttercups dot the hills from spring till autumn, so there's plenty of time for this hike. Over in the East Bay near Pleasanton, Sonol, dubbed Little Yosemite, is a great round-trip hike with views of a flower-filled canyon. And lastly, the hikes of Mount Diablo are known for panoramic views of the bay and a rare yellow lily called fairy lanterns that only blooms there. So next time you want to get out of the house and go for a nice walk, definitely consider what wildflowers you could see on your adventures. And now it's time for Shaylin's favorite segment, our post-show cocktails. This week's cocktail may have our best name yet. This is the peanut butter boozy banana jam smoothie, or as we like to call it, the PBBBJ. PBBBBBBBBBJ. BBBJ. BJ. PBBBJ. So for this boozy smoothie, start by blending two bananas. We recommend frozen ones or else include some ice or else. (laughs) (laughs) Then add a tablespoon of peanut butter. For the boozy part, add two to four ounces of whiskey. There's a peanut butter whiskey called Screwball, which could work perfectly. Blend this all together, and if it's too thick, you can add some milk of any kind or some water. Of any kind. And it tastes great without the whiskey, too. (laughs) Sparkling water. (laughs) In a tall glass or mason jar, take a spoonful of jam and place it in the bottom. Then pour another down the sides of the glass. Then you pour your smoothie in, and you'll be able to see the jam on the sides. You can place a dollop on top, too. Enjoy! And you can find our cocktail recipes on our Instagram at thhpodcast, and also follow us on Twitter at happyhournews. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you want to support the show. We'll make a cocktail recipe in your honor. Please do it! We want to make cocktails for people. And now it's time for our last call. 
Malachi, what's making you happy this week? I did not do a lot this week, but on Wednesday, it was my mom's 49th birthday. Wow. So not the big 5-0. Thankfully, she'll be able to celebrate that next year, hopefully post-pandemic, though she will be in Italy, so we won't be there. Mm. But that's fine. 50th birthday in Italy? Like, I know, complain. surrounded by a bunch of young art friends from her art school, like, She's going to forget that she has children. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. She's like, daughters who? Yeah, I'm going to call her and she's going to be like, who are you? And I'm be like, oh my mom, God. I, I turned 24 this year. You're turning 50. Do you remember? Do you, you remember? remember anyway, it was my mom's birthday. We had a very nice little dinner party. Um, I got to cook food and I made a really good steak. But yeah, short and sweet. Not a lot going on this week. Sometimes you need a week like that. Just a nice short It's been a few weeks, but... Hell yeah. I'm here. I'm existing, and that's meaningful. You deserve to have some time where you're not doing anything, especially after we did all those applications last week. Agreed. Also, my diploma shipped on Tuesday, so I should be Beautiful. getting that bad boy in the mail. Congratulations. Gonna slap that thing in a frame and put it on my wall. Nice. Anyway, Shaylin, what's making you happy this week? Okay, so when this episode airs, I'm like not even going to be home because I'm going camping at the Anthony Chabot like reserve. So I I really just need like a break. You know, I think we all need some time to just reconnect with nature. Me and Saskia, my sister, are going to go camping for her spring break. Um, at the end of this month. Great. Yeah, I'm going with my friend Sam. He's been in my bubble for a long time. So we're going camping. He's bringing his pit bull. I went and picked up my tent and my old sleeping bag, washed it for the first time in like five years. Don't think I'm gross, y'all. I just haven't used it since then. (laughs) So yeah, and also my project for the Bay podcast for KQED is nearly done. I'm almost done with all of my interviews and shit has been unraveling and it's really, really nice to see. I'm really glad to share this with y'all. I think that I'm just... I don't know. I think it's important and hopefully y'all think it's important too. I'm so excited to finally hear it too. I remember looking over your cover letter for this internship Mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. in like October or November Mm -hmm. and you telling me about your story pitch. So, you know, now I get to see it happen. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of The Happy Hour, and thank you to Armand Billamoria for composing and recording our theme music, and thanks to MJ Johnson for talking with us about your work. You can find MJ on Twitter at it's underscore MJJ. See you in two weeks, everyone. Bye. The Happy Hour is produced by Malachi Wade and Shaylin Martos.